Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today, I'm talking more about SSH. I'm sure that's what everybody is excited to hear about. Today, I was going to talk a little bit about what you can do, I guess, to get to your local network from your iPhone. It's kind of interesting how you can access an SSH server or host from a terminal SSH app on your iPhone. It's kind of a cool way to do it. And it really visualizes the terminal pretty functionally. And it's an interesting way to get access to all your files that are at home. Now, to do this on a more complex scale, you have to do some kind of tricky router port forwarding. I know that's kind of a scary set of words, but sort of on the more small scale, you can do it, I guess, just from your phone while you're on your local network. Or like, let's say you're at work and you have a bigger uh, like work wireless network. If you're on that local network, you can get an app like Terminus. That's the one I'm using right now. You search SSH in the app store and you can find a ton of stuff. But I'm using this app uh, Terminus to log in to my home computer and then access my files or FTP myself uh, photographs or something like that. It's kind of interesting, but it's really kind of a novelty right now until I can figure out how to do uh, some, some higher level stuff with it. I'm learning how to use like back to my Mac and some of the remote login stuff to kind of also set up a shell system like it. So uh, kind of cool, but uh, some interesting sort of geeky stuff that I've been, uh, been messing around with the last couple of weeks. It's probably what you've been seeing on my Instagram stories if you've been watching those. It's just me like, hey, look at this thing in SSH. I logged into a server. No way. Get it. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. And I uh, wanted to jump into a couple of the things I've been doing through the month of July and some of the outdoor camping and travel stuff I've been up to. Um, I was going to run down some of that in this uh, podcast today. I wanted to talk about a trip I did out toward eastern Oregon, uh, I think like last or what was a week before last is when I was out in this area. And I was trying to, to get some good uh, observations in for Comet Neowise. I'm not sure if any of you guys got to check that out while it was uh, in its prime viewing section there. I think that was why we had uh, kind of like the new moon before it switched over to being a, a, a gibbous moon or a nearly full moon like it's been the last week or so. But I think, uh, what was it, around like the 15th through the 25th or so of July, there were some pretty good observations uh, to be made of, of Comet Neowise. And um, I guess after after kind of reading about it a little bit, it's not considered a great comet, like Hale-Bopp was, or uh, I think it was, was it Hay Hayutaki in 1996? We haven't had a great comet in a long time. I remember seeing those when I was a kid, though, and that was pretty cool, uh, like uh, watching Hale-Bopp come through for, it seemed like three months or something, you know, that you were just kind of looking at that in the uh, in the, the low corners of the northwestern and western sky as it was kind of cruising across the, the skyline there. I remember that still from, from like third, fourth grade, when it was coming through. And I also remember the year before that when, uh, when like straight up in the air, you, or, you know, like straight up in the sky at night for, it was only like a week or so. I was a kid, you know, but I remember for that week, you could see a real bright two-tailed comet that was going through. I think, I can't remember how to pronounce it. I think it's Hayutaki or I think it's some, it's some Japanese name. Uh, I'm pretty sure. But that was a really cool one. That that one I still remember really clearly. And I, and I was only like, I don't know, seven or something when that like uh, 
when when that comment came through, but I really appreciate getting to make some observations of that one when I was a kid. I missed Haley's comment though back in what eighty seven I think was the last one it uh, it came through, and I probably will be the the few years or that you know that decade or two of of age range that doesn't get to see Haley's comet in their lifetime. So I think uh, I think I was born in eighty eight, of course. So. Uh, if I make it past a hundred, maybe I'll see it. What is it? Maybe like 80 something years. So it's, it's probably not going to come back around until I think it's like the 2070s or 2080s that I'd have to make it to for, uh, to see Haley's Comet again. It'd be fun, but, uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll see how future, how the, you know, the future is at that time. Um, but it was really cool to get to see Comet Neo wise. It was, uh, just a little below what would be the the legs and feet of Ursa Major, the Big Dipper, or uh, like the Big Bear, as it would kind of be observed. But if you if you kind of look at the the Dipper part that we're all mostly familiar with, uh, if you kind of consider Ursa Major the larger bear constellation that it's structured on, uh, if you kind of look down below the Dipper is where I was able to make my observations of Comet Neowise, and um, and over here in the at the elevation area that I'm at. In Western Oregon, it's about 200 or 300 feet above sea level, and there's there's kind of a constant problem with haze and with uh, light pollution in this area. And I think it has to do something with, uh, uh, well, like, I mean, of course, you know, the amount of population that's around, and but also uh, it's, there's something about the air quality or about how the air kind of flows out around here that just doesn't ever seem to be as crisp or as dark as you can get up in the mountains. And uh, and really, yeah, it's just a, like a stunning difference when you're able to get out further uh, and and make some uh, some more clear observations. Just you know, the the level of magnitude of stars that you're able to reveal just in a dark night is so much more crisp and clear. Uh, it's it's just like a it's a total difference. So it was cool to uh, I, I think I first was able to spot just a little fuzzy bit uh, of a second magnitude uh, version of comet Neowise while I was here in town, but I tried to make a special trip out toward Eastern Oregon out into the desert just to do some camping stuff. But uh, what I wanted to do at the same time was make some good observations and, and also try and get some good photographs of Comet Neowise as it was coming through during its period uh, where you could you could make some, some good sightings of it. But it was cool. So going out to Eastern Oregon, as it got dark, a little past 1030 or so, as you look to the northwest, you could really see co the comet and its tail spread for a a couple inches in the sky and I was really surprised to notice how little of it you could really make out or see uh, when you're in an area of, of almost any light pollution once you're back in town or once you're in a lower elevation area with some light pollution and haze around it was really difficult to make out in the same way that I could out in the desert or out in the mountains and so I thought that was uh, pretty cool to get to get to see and and uh, get to check out over there but uh, yeah it was a blast getting to do some stuff uh out in eastern Oregon, I went over to the John Day River area, and I was uh, checking out that area. There's a lot of public land out in that area, but there's also some, a lot of private land, too. It's just kind of an interesting area, how it's sort of broken up, and um, it was cool to get to go out, go out to, though. I headed out to Madras, and then I took off and headed over east of there until I ran into the John Day River, and then I was able to use uh, this map that I have to go through and find some of the open off or just the, the open roads that are, uh, you know, the smaller gravel roads that are set up to kind of traverse the back country out there. So I was able to find a few of those that were open and travel around on those for a while. 
And that was pretty cool. I was able to find some dispersed campsites and set up right along the John Day River, uh, which was really cool. It's a beautiful area out there. It's kind of interesting. The John Day River f- flows through uh, this sort of, I guess it would be, I don't know, it's kind of like canyon land, and it's also sort of these rolling grass hills that sort of make up the landscape of of northern, northern and northeastern Oregon. And I think, uh, yeah, as soon as you kind of get a little bit for like a little bit north of Bend is when you get out of the Great Basin area uh, and you start to get into another kind of landscape that seems to stretch up uh, north of the Columbia River up into Washington. I've heard that some of it's uh, from like really old uh, deposits from the river systems and the waterways that were up there and and how uh, there's old, old, old deposits and then and then erosion that's happened from. Uh, those rivers running through the area for such a long time. But uh, but really cool to see kind of the rolling hills and then some of the carved out canyons that go through the John Day uh, River area up there. When I found the campsite I was at, I was pretty far away from everybody, and I was, I was really uh, far away from any uh, substantial town. I think it was near, I don't know, I don't even know what it is. There wasn't anything there when I drove through it. There was a bridge and, and a couple little ranch houses, uh, you know, real ranches, right, like a, a, just a little t- a little a little house, like a little two bedroom house and then a hundred acres of, of cattle <laughs> to deal with. So, uh, it seems, uh, it seems like another life out there. I wonder how they're dealing with, uh, you know, kind of the way of the world as things are this summer, but, uh, it was cool. Yeah. Getting out there, uh, went, uh, to, or yeah, kind of set up my campsite and stuff, had my truck going and that was all pretty easy going. But then I waited till dark after 1030. Yeah. Comet Neowise was really visible up below the big dipper. That was pretty cool to get to see out there in Eastern Oregon. Really bright, really clear. You could almost make out the second tail. I had my binoculars with me, and I think there's some 10 by 42s. And those worked really well to view it, uh, to view the the comet. Um, looked really crisp through the, through the binoculars, and it got really easy to spot most of the night. Even just to the naked eye, it was really easy to spot. It was just like, oh, yeah, it's right there. There's a comet. It's just a, a big wisp in the sky. Uh, so it was really cool to get to view it. What I did is I set up my tripod and I have my camera with me. And so I set it up with a really wide angle. And then I was trying to get some photographs of it as it was, as the comet was sort of uh, coming down to set uh, on the landscape of the hillside, you know, as the hours went on into the night. So I think I, I stayed out until maybe one or two in the morning when the Big Dipper was sort of uh, scooping down a little low onto the horizon. And then at that point, the the place where the comet was dipped below the horizon and then was uh, out of view for the rest of the evening and I think even into the morning. I think by that time when I was photographing it, it wasn't it wasn't visible any longer uh, up in the morning sky. I think they said that, you know at first in early July you could kind of view it around Capella if you were able to get out early enough, say three or four in the morning. But as it as the direction as it was moving, it was kind of creeping up. Um, pretty quickly, you know, day over day over day, it would kind of move a good chunk through the sky. And uh, in the direction that it was moving, it was moving to be more visible at the nighttime, which really offered uh, more hours of good observation time, which I thought was pretty cool uh, to wait until it was really dark enough in the northwest uh, view of the sky. Probably about 1030 onward is when you're finally able to make out uh, those kind of finer points of light in the sky in that region. Uh, so it was really cool. Set up the tripod, set up the camera, uh, set up some manual focus 
to uh to get it kind of set sharp at night you, know, you can't you can't use autofocus when you're trying to make photographs of the, the night sky and the stars because it just kind of seeks back and forth so you have to set it to manual focus and then uh ring out your um your focus ring to infinity and then just back a little bit you'll notice this every time if you do it it's really frustrating in the dark because you can't really always make it out in, a, in an easy way and, and edit your mistake uh, quickly but if you go all the way to infinity and then take fi pictures there of the night sky you're going to notice that those points of light that are the stars sort of end up a little fuzzy and it's because all the way to infinity for whatever reason just isn't quite in focus at infinity so you have to go to all the way out to infinity and then back it off just a little bit and that'll nearly ensure that most of that part of the image is in focus the whole way and it's difficult even even if you do have uh, an f-stop that's a little bit more tightened out say like an f4 or f6 or something you're still going to get a lot of that that out of focus softness if the focus ring isn't really dialed into the right spot so i try to work on that a little bit and uh yeah dialed in my focus was able to set it up with uh, a reasonable iso to get some images of the night sky and, and pick up some of those finer points of light and then i was able to to take a series of photographs uh, in a few different locations out there in the John Day River Valley, uh, which I thought was really cool. It was, it was uh, pretty to be out there, and it was a nice night, really warm in the River Canyon, and uh, and really remote, too. Like I was mentioning, I think I was the only person out there for a few miles. I saw another another group coming in on a, they had like a little mid-size uh, SUV, and they were going fishing out at a bend in the river a couple miles up from where I was. And so I took my truck down a little further and, and camped out just on the side of the river. It was cool. Nice uh, green river up to the kind of high desert tan rim rock that uh, runs the area around there. Uh, so it was, a, it was a cool evening, cool campsite area. It was a cool spot to check out Comet Neo-wise too. So I tried to check it out uh, up up until, I don't know, what, you know, 1.30 in the morning when I couldn't see it anymore. And then uh, spent the night out there, out in the John Day River area. And then the next morning got up and tried to check out some of the the different roads and stuff that, that went around. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. For the longest time, I was shooting with Nikon cameras, and I'd always uh, really liked doing that, but most of that was always kind of um, maybe constrained by budget. For, I think I started with a Nikon D40 back in you know, 2007 is when I bought it. The camera probably came out earlier than that. I really enjoyed uh, kind of picking up, and that was like an entry-level uh, DSLR at the time. And now it's like really antiquated. I've sold that off now years ago and kind of moved it over into other, other camera equipment over time. Uh, but that's what I got while I was in college. It was a really good camera for me to learn on and, and kind of learn some of the, the fundamentals of working with a digital camera. And I had a lot of fun working with that. I made it like a ton of photographs with it. Then pretty soon after that, 
I tried to switch over to something that was more of a professional body when I was trying to take some of the work that I was doing a little more seriously and when I was trying to get hired as a photographer uh, to do really even just student projects at the time. I was trying to uh, get a couple extra lenses and I was trying to get a couple um, stronger features in the in the camera body that I was using. So at the time, I think it was like 2008, 2009, actually. I think it was in 2009, um, I bought my first uh, like professional body, the Nikon D2H. And at that time, it, that was already a pretty antiquated camera. And I think in yeah, 2009, it probably came out in 2003, I think is what it was. So that's already like a pretty big gap in time there. And there's been, you know, at that time, especially in that decade, there was just so much advancement in the way that sensors worked and the way that uh, the 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 C, or it wasn't even a CMOS. It was like an ELBCAST. It was like an L-B-C-A-S-T named sensor. I don't even know what that is, but it was different than the CMOS system that would be in a lot of cameras. I think that maybe we'd probably find now, or, you know, like the, 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 the sensor piece in the back. And it, it wasn't full frame either. It was... Uh, in even the professional line, it wasn't full frame. It was still like that crop sensor that Nikon had. Um, so it was good for, for a long time, and I was really happy to use it and happy to kind of learn on that camera. It had a ton of features, and really I'd probably go back to that that full professional body of Nikon um, if uh, if I was just to pick any camera that I wanted to use. I think like a Nikon D5 would be an amazing camera to work with. But at the time, uh, what I was trying to do was get a job at a newspaper, like the student newspaper when I was going to college uh, and to try and get some jobs and, or, you know, try and uh, you know, get, get some activity to try and go and take different photographs in different locations. And that job was great. It was cool working for the student newspaper because you get to go to different locations and try and make some interesting photo out of something that's probably not very interesting. It's normally like a, a person talking uh, to, a, to a classroom with beige walls and low level ceiling light or something like that every once in a while you get to go to a football game or something like that something that you you don't really have the opportunity to go to normally and that was really fun that was interesting and it provided me a lot of uh, opportunities to do some some different or you know work with different lenses work with um, you know different lighting and, and some sort of you know interesting and dynamic subject matter but a lot of the time like I'm mentioning it was like um, I think I had to go photograph that they were removing pipes from a student building on some side of campus I hadn't been to before. So it was, it, it was the, I was supposed to take a photograph of the absence of pipes. It didn't really make a lot of sense. It wasn't really a very interesting photo and there, there was no people or story around it. So, uh, it's, you know, it's always something like that, or it seemed to be often something like that, uh, that was just like had almost no subject to take a photograph of. So it was a challenge in that way. Uh, but it was really fun when you got to do something cool. So that's, that's why I bought that, that Nikon D2H. And then to accompany that, I, I think, uh, I tried to save up some money in college. That was hard for me to do. I tried to save up, I think like $150 or something like that to buy the, the 50 millimeter 1.8 lens uh, that was like, I don't know, the, the version of Nifty 50 that they have over on the Nikon side. It was great to use. And, and that, that kit there, that the D2H and the, the the 50 millimeter was what I used to take a bunch of photographs for the next many years. It's a great kit of, uh, of a camera to have. And it worked really well to, to I think, like a bunch of the cool landscape stuff that I did on the, the first couple of trips I did were just both with that setup. Um, so I bought the, that. I bought that Nikon D2H used on eBay when I made that purchase of it. And I used that camera probably for the longest amount of time. Like, uh, I think I used that up until like around 2013 or so when I was kind of trying to shift away from it. Uh, and that's when I was getting into more uh, film photography stuff. At that time, I actually I switched over to a, an even 
or just a different camera, a Nikon N80 film camera, because I was I was doing a ton of stuff with the with film and film rolls at the time. And then I bought uh, a Nikon F4S, uh, another film body camera that was from like the the 90s, I think, is when that one was manufactured. I think it first came out in like 1988. That I probably mentioned a couple times. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some, some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.